Well, good morning, everybody. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 14 this morning. Uh, it's a honor to be here this morning and to open God's Word. And as such, uh, we want you to be able to follow along. So if you need a Bible, uh, grab one of these guys as they work, make their way through the auditorium and uh, get their attention. Luke chapter 14, that's page 729, if you're using one of the Bibles distributed here by CBC. A person's perspective on life can tell us a lot about them. It tells us what they value, tells us what they love, what they dislike. It gives us insight into where or uh, what they're likely to invest their time in. It tells us perhaps how they're going to orient their life. And interestingly, normal interaction with someone over a period of time will give us some clues on their perspective. This was brought to the forefront for many of us during this past election. Now, if you had invited me over to dinner during the election and I, I showed, up, showed up at your house with a red hat that said, Make America Great, you knew exactly where I stood. You knew what issues were important to me. Um, some of you may have actually asked me to leave. I don't know, but... Uh, and the same holds true today if I were to walk into your house and I had a t-shirt on with a rainbow-colored flag. You knew exactly where I stand on, these is- on an issue. It's immediately clear. But I think for, uh, for most of us, it's not that easy to come to that conclusion. We're not all in a, for a particular candidate. We're not all in for a particular party. Maybe we have more, a, new, a more nuanced view of life or politics that can't just be articulated by a hat or a t-shirt. But your perspective and the things you prioritize still speak volumes about you. As we think about our perspectives, the things we place value into, it can be helpful to take stock of where you're at and see if that is indeed where you belong. In Luke chapter 14, the Bible presents us with two perspectives, that of Jesus and that of the Pharisees. And like so much of the Bible, we aren't simply given this historical account so that we can read about Jesus' life and then walk away feeling warm and fuzzy. We are meant to read it and then evaluate our lives in light of what we read. So what does our perspective on life, our perspective on what's important In other words, our priorities, what does that say about us? Before we begin, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to look at your word, to open it up, to see what you have for us this morning. We pray for your grace, for your mercy. We pray for your Holy Spirit to give us uh, the ability to apply these, these words to our lives, that we may be more and more made into the image of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we jump right into the text, uh, since we haven't been working through this book together, it's maybe helpful to get a little insight into Luke's gospel. If we were to turn back into chapter 1, and you don't have to do that right now, uh, we'd read Luke's purpose statement, chapter 1, in the, starting at verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, 
just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So what things? What did Luke want Theophilus to know for certain? Luke wanted his dear friend to be certain about his faith, and in particular, the person on whom his faith is founded, Jesus Christ. So this idea of knowing with certainty that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that he is worthy of our faith guides what we read as we work through this book of uh, Luke's gospel. So much of what we read in this particular book brings us face to face with Jesus and it forces us to respond to what he claims about himself. And so for followers of Jesus, those who claim to be Christians, we are also confronted what it means to be disciples of Christ. And this brings us to the scene recorded for us in, in chapter 14. We have in chapter 14 the last of three dining scenes that takes place in the home of a Pharisee, as Luke records them in the gospel. The first one in chapter 7, the second in chapter 11. And this is noteworthy since throughout the gospel, we're presented with Jesus' interactions with this Jewish religious leadership. And for the most part, it is confrontational. But curiously, Luke describes a series of scenes where Jesus is invited to dine with these leaders, these Pharisees. And so by the time we get to chapter 14, we have a history of these two groups interacting, or with Jesus and the Pharisees and their interaction. In fact, in chapter 11, if we were to turn back, Jesus tells them three times, Woe to you, Pharisees! In fact, he calls them unmarked graves. Instead of pointing the Jesus, excuse me, the Jewish people toward God, they actually defiled them. They actually made them unclean. They made things worse for them spiritually. And this is the context for this third and final dinner scene we have in chapter 14. Starting at verse 1, we read, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being watched or excuse me, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. So picture the scene. A beautiful home, a wonderful meal. And we, we, we picture and we imagine the scene, and on one side there is Jesus. On the other side, a room full of Pharisees. Jesus is brought in. He's escorted to the place of honor at the table. Every eye in the room is on him. They expect him to say something, to do something. And to push the issue, a man with a physical malady described as an abnormal swelling or dropsy, depending on your your version of the Bible, is ushered in front of Jesus. You can almost imagine the thoughts of those present. They're thinking, what's he going to do today? What is he going to say? Is he going to heal this one on the Sabbath just like before? And then what we expect, how we ourselves may have reacted, has a large part to do with our vantage point, our perspective on life and priority. So what does our perspective tell us about ourselves? What does our perspective tell us about ourselves? Uh, Turning back to the text, looking at verse 3. 
Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. So Roman number one of the outline that you have uh, inserted in your your bulletin says, having the right perspective means we see needs as God does. We see needs as God does. We read in verse 3 that Jesus responded to the Pharisees and experts in the law. Most likely what we have presented to us is a, in this scene is a large group of Pharisees, and among these Pharisees is a subset or a smaller group of experts in Jewish law. These would be the Pharisees to whom the tough questions went, the ones who could be counted on to give sage advice about the situations that were too difficult for the average person, too difficult for the average Pharisee to, to answer. And it's to these experts, among the experts, that Jesus directs his question. If we read over the text too quickly, we miss an important piece of the scene. The biblical writer says that Jesus answered. Literally translated from the Greek, it would say something along the lines of answering or responding, he said. But there's no question from the Pharisees. There's no question from the guests present. So why why do I bring this up at this point? Other than to show you that I didn't sleep through all my Greek classes. Maybe there was a question that wasn't recorded by Luke. Or maybe there was an implied question that Jesus is answering. But if we remember what it said in verse 1, he was being watched carefully. The sense of the phrase being that those watching were lurking and waiting to catch Jesus. Then the scene becomes a little more clear for us. Jesus knew what was on their minds. They didn't need to say a thing. The snapshot of the scene gives us multiple hints that what the Pharisees wanted was to get Jesus once and for all. Being invited to a dinner by one of the leaders of the synagogue, a room full of Pharisees, some of whom were experts in Jewish religious law, the presence of the man suffering from the edema or that medical problem that causes a swelling of the body, someone who would have likely been considered unclean, or unfit to dine with this group? Jesus sees that trap. And he purposefully and he masterfully springs the trap. But he does it on his own terms. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 11 and look at verse 53. Luke eleven fifty-three, We read there, When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Chapter 11 records the second meal scene where Jesus had personal and intimate uh, interaction with the Pharisees. That interaction ended with the Pharisees purposing in their heart to somehow discredit Jesus' ministry. Now turn forward to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 and look at verse 17. Luke 13, 17, we read, When he had said this, all his opponents were humiliated. That scene in Luke 13 was the second Sabbath healing recorded in the Gospel of Luke. 
Jesus had healed a woman who suffered from something that caused her, her spine to bend. So that in her adulthood, we read in verse 11 of chapter 13 that it says, she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Jesus charged those leaders, those Pharisees, with hypocrisy. The Sabbath was given for man, to man for good, but they couldn't see that. They could not see the matter as God saw it, as Jesus clearly saw it. Jesus' charge of hypocrisy, it embarrassed them. It angered them. And they clearly made it their mission from that point on to discredit him before the people. So if we return back to our text in chapter 14, instead of the Pharisees questioning him or pushing him into a theological corner, Jesus turned the tables on them and he asked them the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? The Pharisees are quiet. No reply. Imagine the room again. Jesus seated at the table, surrounded by the religious leadership of his day. All eyes on him, the question running through their mind, would he heal again on the Sabbath? Can we catch him once and for all and get rid of this man? The room is quiet. And Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew what they wanted to do. And he asked what on the surface is a simple question. And not one of these men, whose function it was to interpret the tough theological issues, dared to answer him. Breaking the silence, we read in verse 4, taking, the whole, taking hold of that man, he healed him and sent him on his way. And again, we're left scratching our head. Jesus just healed this man and then he sends him away. No words from the man suffering from the edema. No words from Jesus to the man. He didn't charge him with anything as far as we read. The Greek says literally, he released him. So just like that woman in chapter 13, whom Jesus said in thirteen sixteen, should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? This man suffering from a medical condition that was said to be like a curse, a condition where he was always thirsty, no matter how much he would drink. The man suffering from edema could never be quenched. He was now freed on the Sabbath. On the day that God set apart for the benefit of his people, that they might be blessed, that they might be refreshed, and remember the one from whom all their blessings ultimately flowed. But interestingly, just like that, the man's part in the story ends. He's sent on his way. Nothing more is said about him. And this helps us to clue in on what's the heart of the passage, where our focus is supposed to be as we work through this text, the interaction of Jesus with these religious leaders. Jesus quickly asked the Pharisees a follow-up question to his original one. If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? Jesus' second question expands and clarifies the first. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? If someone or something you cared about was in a situation where they absolutely needed your help, of course you're going to act. So your son or the means of your livelihood, that ox, falls into the well and they're trapped, you're going to act without questioning. You know it's the right thing to do. The implied question to the Pharisees is, is why is your compassion lacking for those around you? Why does your compassion fall short to all the need that's surrounding you? The ones who had brought Jesus here, 
who had hoped to provoke some issue that they might have reason to act against him, they were again silenced. They had nothing to say. The biblical writer doesn't offer any reasons why they couldn't or wouldn't respond. We, the reader, are left to think about the situation ourselves. So this initial scene helps us to begin to form an answer to the question I posed at the beginning, what do, I par- what do our priorities tell us about ourselves? These religious leaders who were supposed to provide guidance and interpretation for the benefit of the Jewish people were so caught up in their religious rituals, in their ceremonies, in, the, in their influential positions, that they could no longer see the great need of the people. In fact, their vision was so clouded by the wrong things that they couldn't even find joy at the great works being done before their eyes. Their hearts were hardened. Their thoughts refused to glorify God for what, their, what was being done in their presence by the one who, by, their very, by the very miracles being performed, proved that he was God incarnate. And the text forces us to look at our own lives, to face the mirror and see how we compare it to these men. How often do we get caught up in doing religion, that we miss opportunities to see the circumstances that we're in as God sees them? How easy is it for us to hide behind religious observance and not expose ourselves to the needs that are in our midst? The Pharisees, these Jewish religious leaders, were hypocrites. Outwardly, their language and their actions made everyone believe they followed God. But inwardly, their thoughts, their intentions demonstrated something different. The scene is one that is meant to be jarring for the reader. Here we have Jesus and his adversaries. Jesus had moved the debate from the theoretical to the practical. He had taken a theological question and put feet on it, as it were. In effect, saying, you have your rabbinical rulings. You have your interpretations of God's commandments. What do you do with this man sitting here? And the silence is deafening. They couldn't answer, and they didn't dare answer. So are we taking steps to prevent that charge in our own life? We can quote the Bible. We've gotten pretty good at pointing out the sinful behavior that others are doing around us. But if you stepped out of your way to show mercy to one who so desperately needs it? And you may be wondering then, so what does that mean? What does that mean for me? And I don't think it means anything, I don't think it means you need to go out and start doing anything in particular. I think it means that we need to approach our lives and our situations and our relationships in such a way that we view them how God views them. We continue to do those things we, we know we should or we need to do. We go to school, we go to work, we worship together, we do our best to be a good neighbor. But we do it with an eye for sharing our faith, for building redemptive relationships. We live our lives in such a way that we are flexible, that we're willing to see and meet the needs that are around us. We're, we're willing to inconvenience ourselves for others, to change course when we have to. Jesus tells us in Matthew 9, 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God's desire for us is that we're always ready to show mercy, to put action to our faith, to demonstrate to others 
the love that God first showed us. Seeing needs as God does means we have the right perspective. And then I say in that second point, having the right perspective means we seek honor from God and not from men. We seek honor from God and not from men. Turning back to our text, looking at verse 7 of chapter 14. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If we remember the start of the narrative in verse 1, Luke told us that those present were watching Jesus carefully. But here in verse 7, we can see that reversal of roles. We read that Jesus is the one taking notice. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, the guests themselves showed up at the dinner and began to choose places for themselves that they thought they deserved. We aren't told whether those positions meant a particular seat or proximity to a particular person, like the host, for instance. But what is clear is that in that particular culture, Seating position meant something. And where you were reflected your importance. And we could see that if we were to turn to Matthew 20, 20. You don't have to turn there. Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at the left in your kingdom. The mother of James and John recognized this fact of preeminence depending on where you sat. And she sought positions for her sons. Jesus tells her in the end of verse 23, these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Jesus was teaching that true honor, true exaltation is something that can ultimately come from God alone. Looking again at Luke 14, and having taken note of the scene before him, Jesus advises the guest and, by extension, us, of the proper course of action by way of negative and positive uh, commands. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus tells the guests to refrain from assuming importance for themselves because doing so runs the risk of a humiliating outcome. There is a kind of importance that comes from within that seeks to convince others of the respect or the preeminence we think we deserve. And there's another kind of importance that is bestowed from without or outside that comes from someone who knows us intimately. It comes from a person who is in a position to bestow honor on others, who, him, who himself occupies a position of supreme honor. And verses 10 and 11 tell us the positive course of action with Jesus telling the guests, rather, take the lowest position, the seat of least importance. Doing so may then result in being honored before all who are present as the host moves you to a place of preeminence, excuse me, prominence. Verse 11 points us to the fact that we're not simply reading Jesus' suggestions for being a good dinner guest, a kind of biblical guide to dinner etiquette. When we read 
that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The implication there is that God himself is the agent who does the humbling and exalting. Jesus has had consistently taught that those who follow him, who call themselves his disciples, are to be people marked by humbleness. People who consistently and intentionally seek to place others before themselves. In that passage from Matthew, we read that James and John sought a place of high, or sought places of uh, honor, the place of preeminence right next to Jesus for themselves. Jesus himself set a different example for us. If you turn quickly to John 13, John chapter 13. John 13, looking at verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around them. Jesus Christ, the one who was equal with God, who was God, who created all things, and by his word upholds all things, had lowered himself to the lowest position possible in that culture. Something Jews would often have Gentile or non-Jew servants do for their guests because they viewed it so menially. He was now washing the feet of his followers. He was setting an example, a picture that would be burned into the minds of his disciples, of taking that lowest position gladly, willingly, and lovingly. We don't live in an honor culture here in the United States. That is, we don't live in a culture where honor and shame drive the, drive the culture and dictate so much of daily life. But we do still desire honorable positions, don't we? We determine our value by how many people are underneath us on the organizational chart. We determine our worth by what job title you have. We determine our worth by what neighborhood we live in, what college you went to, if you went to college. I remember talking with some Korean guys when I was younger, and they were telling me about uh, life with, among young men in Korea. And in Korea, every, every man has to serve two years in the military, South Korea, uh, just to make that clear. Uh, every, every single man has to serve two years in the military. And so when two men interact with each other, when they meet each other, it doesn't matter here in the United States and Korea, in the course of the conversation, one of the first things that comes up is, well, what military unit did you serve in? And they ask that question because depending, the unit they're assigned to, the unit that they serve in for that two years, is a largely a product of their background, their social standing outside of the military. And so by asking that question, what, what unit did you serve in? They're setting the order, the social order in their interaction. So among that group, they know who's the leader. Who's the one who everybody has to default to? 
So often in our interactions with others, we do things. We ask questions that seek to set the standing in the relationship. Those who call themselves Christians may sing about an amazing grace that saves a wretch like me. But do we really, really believe that? Do we really act that way? Before moving on, we need to briefly touch on the issue of of a self-serving humility. The kind of humility that puts others first, but we're going to make sure that you guys all recognize that I put that person first. That humble attitude that has at its core a desire to actually leverage that humility for our own benefit. It's like uh, some of you guys are probably going to get lost, but Laurel and Hardy, they would have a scene where it was like, you first, no, no, you first. And so this goes back and forth. They were trying to prove who's the most gracious, who's the most magnanimous. So both of these extremes then, of either taking honor on yourself or feigning humility for the sake of gaining another's ad, uh, admiration, have at their heart the attitude that Jesus sought to deal with in our passage in Luke. Jesus was addressing the self-centered attitude that is so pervasive in all of us. And connected with that, he sought to remind us that there is coming a judgment where God himself will humble those who refuse to be humbled, who take honor upon themselves. When we love God, we seek to live lives that please him. We seek the honor that can only come from God. Worldly recognition and accolades no longer have the same control over us. Our motivation for doing so comes from a changed heart. As we live for God and humble ourselves in his service, we are freed to treat others with love and respect. As our desire for God and the things of God grow, so does our love for others. Jesus addressed that in our third point. Having the right perspective means we seek to do the best for others. We seek to do the best for others. Looking at verse 12. Then Jesus said to his hosts, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they will invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. A third proof that we have, in fact, aligned our perspectives, our priorities with Christ, is that we want to do the best for others. Most of us uh, move towards one of two tendencies with how we, how we treat others. One is motivated by self-love. So what do I mean by that? It's a, it's a type of altruistic behavior that has at its, at its base motivation a desire to make me feel good on the inside. I help out at the soup kitchen. I sponsor orphans in Malawi. I give money to that guy with the sign at the exit off I-75. But I do it because deep down it makes me feel good. The benefit received is primarily about my self-worth. And the other tendency, and the one that Jesus deals with in our present text, is related to that first. We do good things for others because we anticipate getting something good out of the transaction. Both of these tendencies are motivated out of selfish behavior. The second tendency is sometimes referred to as reciprocity. 
a mutual exchange of goods or services, the give and take that has at its core the idea that what I provide for you, to you, you should repay me in kind. So if I give you a loan, you should be ready to give me one back. If I give your kid $100 for their wedding, then when my son gets married, you better, you know, I better see you there. Now, I should say that this principle in, in, in one, is one that in many ways has its uses. In many cultures, it's what binds people together into a neighborhood, into a community. If I have and you need, you help me so that I can, I'll trust that you'll, I'll be, excuse me, that you'll trust, you can trust I'll be there when you need. Think about the, the idea of a cup of sugar. When I was growing up, we grew up in a poor neighborhood, and so you would go ask for a cup of sugar, but it was for the baking. It was for Kool-Aid, so you'd get a cup of sugar for Kool-Aid. But you go and ask the guy, the person next door for some sugar. It's the idea that, you know, I'll give you, you guys give me some sugar, and then when I have uh, some money and buy some sugar, we'll give it back to you when you need it. The problem for us, for Christians, deals with the motivation for why we engage in this behavior, in reciprocity. Having God's perspective means seeing others as God sees them. Our motivation for giving or providing for others cannot be aimed at repayment or at receiving thanks from that person. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were well known to open their homes for guests. But their motivation for doing so was problematic. Verse 12 of chapter 14 highlights Jesus' continued interaction with that group of Pharisees. Jesus continues his extended parable and he turns his attention to the host of the dinner, that prominent Pharisee that was mentioned in verse 1. And like the critique of the guest in the previous section, Jesus gave a negative and positive command to that host, dealing with the type of people one should seek to invite. Instead of inviting those who can pay, who will pay you back, Jesus told the host to invite those who are unable to pay back at all. The blessing you will receive will be better than the fleeting thanks or blessing you receive from others. Jesus emphasized this point in verse 14, saying, You will be blessed. The person doing the blessing will be God as opposed to man. The grammatical construction used by Luke here emphasized the heavenly origin of that blessing. And that point is further emphasized by the end of verse 14 when we read, You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus wasn't telling them, and he's not telling us, that we shouldn't have our friends or family over for dinner. He wasn't putting a prohibition on social gatherings of close friends. What, what the original language here conveys is that Jesus was saying, Don't make it a custom, don't make it a habit of inviting only those you seek to get some kind of repayment from. The essence of the thought here is not on how to have a dinner party that pleases Jesus. You probably can do a, a quick YouTube search for a, a video on how to have a dinner party to please Jesus besides. We already, uh, what Jesus was advocating for here was a radical departure from the typical way of thinking for these Jewish leaders. Instead of inviting family, friends, and rich neighbors, they were to seek out and invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. 
The list Jesus provided highlighted the most vulnerable in that society, the ones who could never pay back in kind to a rich person's generosity. If we were to look at Deuteronomy 15.7, we'd read, If anyone is poor among you, among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever you need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so with a grudge, without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. What Jesus taught them was radically different from what they practiced. It was radically different from the culture of that time. But it was not radically different from what they should have been doing. Acting generous, showing hospitality, reaching out to those in need and who could never pay back was consistent with what they had been taught but neglected to learn. As one commentator notes, the best hospitality is that which is given, not exchange. Hospitality is generosity when no motive exists besides giving. And Philippians 2.3 reminds us, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself. But maybe the, the practical part of you thinks, what a waste, what a waste of social capital. I could be using my time and money, my home, my food to advance my career, to advance my social standing. Not only that, but if I don't invite this couple over, it's going to cost me. They already invited the wife and kids and myself over for dinner, and I need to pay them back now. It may cost me social standings to not pay back that dinner invite. It may cost me a friendship with these important people. And it was the same for the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Their social standing was tied to maintaining those reciprocal networks. Not inviting the right people over to dinner or not paying back for being invited could mean that they would be ostracized or put out from their larger network. But Jesus charged them all the same. And he's charging us all the same. The beauty of what Jesus was doing there at that dinner that evening 2,000 years ago was magnificent. Not only did he upend that social web that people were entangled in and worked so hard to maintain, he freed them up and he's freeing us up so that we can have real community, real friendships, real communion, show real love, real compassion to those who need it so desperately. Those for whom this parable is resonating, it is to those who can begin to see as God sees, who can see the needs as Jesus saw needs. We may still have that desire for recognition. We may still harbor those feelings of wanting honor from our peers. But we know, as Jesus indicated at the end of Luke 14, that our reward would come from God in the end at the resurrection of the righteous. 
for God's people, the knowledge of our Heavenly Father being pleased with us overcomes our sinful desire for the accolades and honors of men. But the benefit doesn't stop there. Those who have need, those who can't repay kindness, those who can't repay that invitation to that dinner, they don't need to be ashamed. Growing up uh, poor in a single-parent home meant that we realized uh, really quickly that there were places we didn't go, we couldn't go. An invitation to attend a dinner with a certain group of people was always going to be turned down. My mom had to work multiple jobs raising two of us, and she couldn't afford to pay those people back. She couldn't afford to invite people over for dinner. And I remember as I got older and reflected on those times, I remember the shame my mom felt in asking and receiving help. Part of that was self-inflicted. Part of it was coming from the giver, as they expected to be profusely thanked and treated a certain way in light of their benevolence. But as Christians, those who understand the circumstances in light of God's truth, we recognize that our need is not something we should be ashamed of. As people living in community, we should all realize that some have, some don't, but none should be forced to go without, and none should be forced to feel shame for asking for help. Romans twelve sixteen tells us, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Following Jesus means aligning our priorities with his. It means having the right perspective, the same perspective as God. We need to love and prioritize the things that Jesus does, that God does. It means taking stock of our lives, being honest about what our perspective says about us, seeking God in prayer repenting of those areas that we must repent for and asking for grace for clear vision to move forward. It means being inconvenienced at times, being put out for the sake of others. It means moving towards others to meet their needs. I say in that take-home truth, following Jesus means aligning our perspectives with his. Following Jesus means aligning our perspective, perspectives with his. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, are just convicted by your word and uh, we admit our need for your grace to move forward. We pray for eyes that would see the needs around us, that seeks hearts that seek to reach out to those in need, that, Lord, we would repent of those areas of our life that we need to repent and that ultimately you would be pleased with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.